Welcome to The Practice Podcast, a show created by lawyers to help lawyers in life and business without all the complicated lawyer language. Let's welcome Bast Amron founders and your hosts, Jeff Bast and Brett Amron. Hey, Jeff. Hi, Brett. How are you? I'm wonderful. How are you? Wow, wonderful. Yeah. I'm excited. We have a good guest today. I'm, I'm excited. I'm uh, so excited to see you. Always gets me excited. Let's, uh, all maybe, right. Let's maybe roll. that's a topic for another recording. Let's roll into it. Yeah. All right. Nelson's cueing me that I'm uh, too soft. I'm, I'm too quiet today. Yeah, don't go. Not too soft. <clears throat> I, I don't get told that often, but anyway. Hi, Scott. We have a special guest today, Scott Schoenfeld. Scott is a partner in the corporate and securities and real estate groups of Fox Swibel, which is a boutique business law firm in Chicago. He maintains a very broad-based transactional practice. You know, he handles mergers and acquisitions, securities matters, general corporate and commercial real estate. But his real focus, and that's likely going to touch on this today, is his expertise in representing restaurants and in particular celebrity chefs. He frequently partners with restaurateurs, restaurant owners, developers, chefs, and, and virtually every other type of stakeholder in the restaurant industry. And he collaborates with some of the largest and most successful restaurant companies in the nation. And he's negotiated, documented, closed many transactions in this space. He also works with Northwestern University's startup accelerator known as The Garage, which is a cool name. And he represents emerging companies in every aspect of the startup life cycle. So we're excited to have him. Welcome, Scott. Thank you so much, guys. It's truly a pleasure to be here in sunny South Florida. I did grow up here. here. I absolutely am from here. I went to high school in Pinecrest in Fort Lauderdale. And I was a summer associate a thousand years ago at Stearns Weaver here in Miami. But it is a. I think were, were you a summer associate with someone we know? A hundred percent. That's how I know her. That's how I know her. <laughs> but Haley it, Harrison. It, it's certainly been a long time coming, and I spend winters here in South Florida. But tremendously delighted to be here today. All right. Thanks well, we are me. recording this in late October. <laughs> I don't know if I call it winter. No, I would not call it winter. I wouldn't even maybe not even fall. But I guess it's not summer. <laughs> it's, it's not. It's <laughs> not summer. Good point. I, I think the weather is beautiful out. So, so how did you end up in Chicago from growing up in South Florida? Yeah. So I went to college for two years at Dartmouth College in, in Hanover, New Hampshire, and then spent the other two years at Stanford and graduated from Stanford, not really knowing which law school or sort of, you know, region I was going to end up in, but had the sort of great, I guess, you know, chance or fortune to get accepted from the University of Chicago Law School in Chicago. Great school. Went there, stayed for a girl. She and I broke up, but kept the city. And it's truly a great place to live and to practice law. Yeah, Yeah, Chicago's a great city. Really cool. And I I always, to me, it sort of has to be given how cold it is, right? I mean, I would think (laughs) it's got to be a cool place to live. Yeah. Yeah. I always say it's like a clean New York, you know, a little smaller, but much cleaner. And it's Midwestern. So people are still friendly there. It's super Midwest. It's super nice. The practice of law is much more manageable than New York. And truly the attorneys there are really top notch and really easy to work with. Right. And you've been with uh, Fox Weibel for? About six and a half years now. Okay. Just made partner in the last year. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you both very much. Although making partner is like one of those, uh, it's like uh, you won the pie eating competition. The prize is more pie. A hundred percent. So uh, it's one of those things that I think all young lawyers strive for, and they're not really sure why. 
<laughs> but but we know we want it. We all get it. So congratulations Thank on you. getting it. So I, I mentioned in your introduction, your restaurant practice, before we dig into it, how did you find your way to corporate transactions? Yeah. Or did you... Well, actually, before I would even go there, did you know you wanted to go to, you always knew you wanted to go to law school? Cause so I'm actually the son of a former litigator from down here. Her, her oh. name is Felice Schoenfeld. She retired a few years ago. She was at Dwayne Morris. And I'm probably more similar to her than I would care to share. And I think as a young person growing up, I just kind of knew that I had that thing. I definitely had the interest and the talent to become an attorney. And after graduating from college with a sociology major and a minor in engineering, I decided that probably the best application of my talents and interests was going to law school. So I've known for quite some time that I would be an attorney. I didn't actually know that I was going to be a corporate attorney or a transactional attorney. So actually, that is really, truly happenstance. Uh, During the first year of law school, I was taking CivPro. I was taking all of these super (laughs) case-based, litigation-oriented classes, and I really hated it. I thought this is just super, it's terribly uninteresting. It's very much bogged down in nuance and discovery and all of these mini battles that go on behind the scenes that I thought were terribly uninteresting. And I called my mom during my one L at Chicago and I said, this is just horrible. I think I'm going to drop out. And she said, you know, you should really hang in there because if you do, you can take corporate classes, tax classes, and perhaps your sort of more mathy, businessy kind of mind is going to gravitate towards that. And I'm I'm truly fortunate that so I did that advice, because yeah, I yeah. was able to see that transactional is just like super interesting, super creative right. and have since yeah. been doing that. So you're now on record, by the way, for thanking mom. So thanking mom. Thank you. If you want to thank her more, you know, formally, uh, <laughs> right. for it. Yeah. So, I, so for me, I, I actually went the opposite. I was a finance major in college. I thought I wanted to be a corporate transactional lawyer, actually in-house. I was like, oh, I'm going to go and work for a company and be an in-house counsel. And then I got my first job as a clerk in with a litigator yeah. in Miami. Yeah. And I said, oh, no, I, I think I want to do that. <laughs> and then I started taking all these classes yeah. and litigation skills and all that. And then I, that's, I now look at transactional lawyers and think the same thing you do about litigators and that's why there's litigators and that's why there's transactional lawyers, right? 100%. I mean, yeah. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah. It's funny though, to, like the polar opposites. Wow. Know? Yeah. Well, yeah. I, you know, truly I do think that when you have a really good dogfight that's really nuanced and, yeah. and kind of has some wrinkles, a really good piece of a trial or a really good matter that you guys handle is often much more interesting than the absolute most interesting sure. case that I handle. But I will say that you guys drag those on for years and years and years, whereas an M&A or a real estate deal is opened and closed in you right. know two to three months. Right. Well, I mean, it, it is, I would say, generally transaction or generally is more collaborative, right? You're hopefully 100%. you're on one side, they're right. on the other side. You're both trying to achieve the same objective. You want to get the deal done. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so... Ours is a little bit more combative. I think bankruptcy kind of falls in the middle. We're sort of in a hybrid of the two. We have litigation components, but we're also ultimately, if it's, especially if it's a restructuring, we're trying to achieve an objective, and that is the, the re- emergence of this company in an operating you know, fashion. Well, I think that even in litigation, right? I mean, you're trying to achieve something, right? And hopefully you can get the other side to agree in terms of what that is, not necessarily where it's going to end up. Sure. Right. 
that if both sides can get in the room, and this is where good high-level litigators come into play, just like good M&A lawyers, you know, let's get in a room and figure out, okay, where does my client want to be? Where does your client want to be? How do we try to get somewhere in between that? Totally. Right. Yeah. And it, but we get dragged along a lot of times into litigation for years and all right, well, that's what we have to do because the other side, that's what they want to do. Or sometimes our client, that's kind of where they want to go, right? Sure, sure. You know, it's the sure. same thing in m and I mean, it's, it's more, it could be more short term, like you said, than litigation. And hopefully everyone's working in this, you know, in the same direction and collaboratively, but sometimes deals fall apart. hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. And I'm sure some deals fall apart from fatigue. Litigation sometimes does too. It doesn't <laughs> fall apart, but people yeah. finally give up after they've been paying bills and, and fighting and been distracted. But it's something we say that, you know, the res, uh, to comment on Brett's comment, which is we always say that our client winning doesn't necessarily mean that the other side loses. I mean, sometimes it's finding the right. that middle ground where we can our client can win and the other side can not lose. Yeah, I mean, I think early in my career, I would, wins. I want to win right. now. A little yes. older, a lot, lot more gray, and it's well, you know, what what's that? a win? Yeah, and a loss. You know, it's more gray. It's more yeah. nuanced. Right. You know, because it it could be a win for a party. We're mostly on the plaintiff side, but it could be a win for a party to on the defense side to settle and pay some money as opposed to yeah. spending more money on litigation fees and and spending more money on a judgment or on a settlement. So For sure. But to be fair, you know, in a corporate deal or a real estate deal, you can have a buyer and a seller walk away both feeling as though they absolutely crushed it. Sure. Uh, right. And I feel like in when the nature... Don't close, you mean when they... No, I mean, the deal closing? If, if a deal closes, <clears throat> you know, both sides can walk away feeling as though they absolutely crushed it. Um, right. But they should, right? That's a good and they, deal. And, and they absolutely should. But definitely in litigation, you know, it's probably more likely than not that some side probably more substantially prevailed than some other side um, did. I'd say perhaps Sometimes. if you get to judgment or there's significant negative rulings, right, that gut your defense or gut your plaintiff's case. But if you reach a settlement, there could be a time when I both guess. sides walk away going, yeah, crushed it. They could have gotten more or, man, we were more willing off. to take less. Or, I guess you know that's what I mean? fair. I guess more that's often fair, it's yeah. Both sides are unhappy. Or, right, or right. Both, both sides, sides are fair. unhappy. And that, <laughs> and that means that it's a good settlement in yeah. all likelihood, right? Like both sides are thinking, man, I left money on the table or... I could, I pay too much for sure, you know, and you're holding your nose and you're willing to take it. For so, sure. Yes. And so there's some similarities with M&A, although I think you're right that most of the time people walk away from litigation thinking, boy, I don't want to do that again. Right. As opposed to an M&A deal, like, yeah, we're going to do that again. You know, we're going to buy something or right. we're going to sell something again. Sure. But sure. I think, you know, your perspective, Brett, is why, you know, one of many reasons why you're an excellent litigator, because you're thinking about the end. Right. That's really what both sides should be thinking about. What's the end here? Like How nobody wants to be involved in litigation. Yeah, right. I mean, just as a, as a long-term idea concept, ultimately what both sides want is an end. So what's the right. end and where, you know, how far apart are they and how do you bring them together? To me, I find it so, so impressive squaring off with counsel across from the table who truly can say no, or who can say maybe 
but who offer a range of alternatives. Right. And people who can really articulate a series of, of alternatives and present them and offer them kind of interchangeably, that to me is a, yeah. a truly impressive lawyer who right. is able to solve problems. Right. Okay. As opposed to attorneys who, your job. who simply say no and tell you, you know, it. that it's their practice to say no on the issue or their, their client can't possibly say yes, blah, 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 blah. That is a not persuasive attorney in my mind. Right. Yeah. So as Jeff said, right, sitting in a room, again, when you have a deal, right, it's the goal is the end game and the goal is to close that deal. Sure. Right. And the terms are going to kind of go back and forth and you're going to get there and paper it. Even on a restructuring, it's the same thing. If you go into a bankruptcy, right, well, what do we always say before you file a bankruptcy? You know what the exit's going right. to be. Always have a plan to get out. Always have a plan to get out. That's the end. And the same thing in litigation, which is, okay, how does this end? You know, and unfortunately, in all of those areas, you come across lawyers on the other side that either can't acknowledge that, won't acknowledge that. But also, also, amazingly enough, it does seem as though some clients want that. Some clients think that good lawyering is just simply being impossible and simply being a jerk and simply sort of sort of like rattling a saber and showing how nasty you are. And there is an element, there is some sort of a productive value in sometimes being a jerk. But more often than not, I find the absolute finest lawyers that I encounter are the ones who are very even keeled, very persuasive, very sharp, and are able to articulate a range of alternatives and get to a place that I think both parties kind of want to go. Right. Yeah. 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 You got to figure out how to get there, right? Right. Be a lawyer. And listen, there are times where you need to be aggressive. There's times you need to push. There's times when you need to sometimes even get animated. Sometimes there is a place for that. Sure. But never losing sight of or having that communication with your client of where are we going? You know, where are we going? 100%. And it may not be a straight line. It may 100%. not be. But never losing sight of that ultimate goal. So good stuff. And we also have an episode, I think it's called Bulldogs Are Not Better Lawyers or something like that. But that's Bulldog generally, yeah. It, yeah. It's, right. it's um, right. sure you've listened to all the episodes of the podcast. Every single yes. one of them. Yes. You probably remember that one. Yes. It's we, early, swore him, we, we swore him in beforehand. So if right, he didn't, confirm, then we, right, It's right. part of the process right. of getting on the show. Yeah, exactly. That's right. That's right. So <laughs> let's talk about your restaurant practice. How? Yeah. Let's first, how did you get involved in So I started the first three years of my career practicing, just doing pure dirt work. And I was doing, yeah, just doing pure real estate deals at a very high level, doing industrial acquisitions and doing portfolio acquisitions and doing dispositions and financings. And three years in, I just decided that being a 100% dedicated real estate lawyer was not my thing. And I was searching for a job and I came across Fox Weibel. And Fox Weibel is this boutique firm in Chicago that has some really top-notch lawyers who came from very big firms, but who wanted to have a more entrepreneurial career and have a rate structure that ultimately is palatable to clients who are both big and small and sophisticated and, and solos. And so I was offered the opportunity to be retrained as a corporate lawyer. And growing up as a corporate lawyer, I was, you know, kind of getting involved pretty early on with my mentor and boss, Larry Swibel, whose name is on the is on the wall. And Larry is sort of the dean of the restaurant bar in Chicago. He represents some of the major restaurant groups and celebrity chefs across the country and also in Miami. And I became his right-hand guy 
and got some really great experience doing everything from the lease to the joint venture to the equity offering among friends and family, sometimes exits, sometimes purchases, sometimes IP matters, but becoming the trusted sort of outside transactional counsel that these restaurant groups and chefs need doing their deals, growing their business. And after doing that for quite some time, I was able to develop my own roster of clients and also become his sort of trusted guy with our existing clients. And now I would say that I'm practicing at the absolute same caliber as anybody in the city, as anybody across the country in this space. Wow. Wow. That's pretty impressive. And I mean, you mentioned the transition from real estate to transactional. I mean, it's not real estate is a transactional practice. Sure. It's just a little bit more of a of a niche. It's very similar. I mean, so, you know, growing up and marking up real estate purchase agreements, the concepts that you see in M&A deals and real estate deals are very similar. You have reps and warranties, you have covenants, you have survivals. However, the primary difference in being a real estate lawyer versus a corporate lawyer is the range of issues that you see in diligence. In real estate, you see easements, you see encroachments, you see certain zoning issues. Right. Sometimes there, there are you know permitting issues. But the universe of possibilities that you're going to see for a real estate deal, it's kind of narrow. Right. In a corporate deal, you can see employment issues. You can see ERISA issues. You can see tax issues. You can see... Real estate issues. A hundred percent. And so, you know, as a corporate lawyer, I think it truly is more challenging only because the universe of things that ultimately can kill a deal are so much greater. And you have to have a wider knowledge base to sort of know as a corporate lawyer that you have an issue, you can't resolve it yourself. You have to pull in counsel But ultimately having sort of, I would say, ankle deep knowledge on a very wide range of issues. Ankle deep knowledge? Yeah. As opposed to like being knee deep in every kind of a real estate issue and being able to solve that issue. Ankle deep saying, gosh. So so it's it's almost as if, and maybe it is, you're sort of acting as their general counsel almost with respect to all of these issues. Meaning there's some things you can dive into and handle. And there's sometimes you need some expertise. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Right. Right. Yeah. So you're kind of, you're the quarterback basically for the client. And I was, imagine on a major M&A deal, you're assembling a team of people and likely from within Fox Weibel, but maybe not. Yeah. A hundred percent. I certainly think the quarterback analogy is kind of overused, but it's probably a fairly illustrative characterization right. of, of how corporate attorneys work right. on M&A deals. Right. I mean, I always, I use it in the same in restructuring. You're kind of the quarterback and there's, there might be real estate people, there's M&A people, there are litigators. It's kind of, you know, a, sure. a panoply of, of lawyers. And and so, and this Fox Weibel, do you, is it full service? Full or? service okay. has every practice that you pretty much have to draw upon. A few exceptions, healthcare, right. ERISA, but by and large, we absolutely have the capability to handle a pretty major M&A. So what are you seeing today as some of the key issues that your clients, restaurateurs are are having? Yeah. So I think from my vantage point, the issues that our clients are seeing in the restaurant front, right now it's consumer pullback. As the economy weakens, consumers are, are quick to give up their discretionary spend at restaurants, point one. Point two is, to your point before the show, Brad, it's absolutely the inability, continued inability to get staff. Amazon and, and all of these major retailers picked up 
a huge number of restaurant workers during the downturn. And that hasn't returned to normal levels. So I'm constantly having issues getting a hold of my clients because they are running around doing so many different odd jobs for these restaurants. Beyond that, debt and the overall debt markets is tough right now. I mean, as interest rates go up, demand for debt goes down, becomes pricier to finance certain things. Yeah, I would say that those three issues. And I would imagine that I know there's consumer pullback. And within that, right, the cost of all the materials and goods and human resources can't be passed on 100%, right, to the clients. To, yeah, to, to the customer, I and, would say. You know, and it's funny because we certainly have seen that in Chicago. And I'm sure that, you know, I'm sure it's the same down here in South Florida. Certain of our clients had a 2% or a 3% service charge passed on to clients or customers rather. And overwhelmingly, I think that customers were accepting of it, but there were a vocal enough minority who weren't accepting of it, sure. who made it a problem. Mm-hmm. And so- you know, restaurants haven't been as successful in passing through costs as, say, attorneys have. Yeah. I mean, it's a tough business. I always say restaurants, I can't really think, maybe law firm, I can't think of another business that where you have to get everything right. The price has to be right. The service, the temperature, the climate, the timing, the taste. There's zero margin for the lighting. 100%. You know, it's like... And if, and if, you, if, and if a customer is, has a bad experience... That's it. It yeah. could like almost right? never. Almost I will never say, you guys, chance, right? right? If you have a bad experience at a restaurant, you're probably not going to go back there. Yeah, it's a tough business. How do you guys feel about the overall service down here in South yeah. Florida? <laughs> I, I think it's. I'm a believer. I, I'm. I'm he proud a, of. Yeah, I'm a. a, I'm a, a I'm every every winter, I'm a cheerleader. Jeff is a homer. <laughs> I'm a cheerleader. <laughs> That's what you would call a homer. Every uh, winter, I come down here and I dine. <laughs> at your best restaurants in like Wynwood or Mm -hmm. Brickell or wherever. And I'm truly amazed at the lack of service down here. The good restaurants are the ones who last, who survive a long time. And those that survive are the ones that get it right. So, well, I'm going to throw a little bit of cold water. I'm always open for it. No, I I, I think there's some truth to what you just said, right? Which is there are some really high-end, not even high-end, good restaurants. They don't have to be high-end that probably get it right. And maybe that's due to their hiring process. Maybe that's due to what they pay people, how they treat people, all of that. But there are, by and large, a huge percentage of the businesses down here. The service is terrible. And I think that we become accustomed to it. 100%. And we just eat it. We literally eat it, (laughs) right? I mean, we just take it. And there's times I stopped... For a while, my wife and I, we would go to a restaurant after the pandemic and things started opening up and the service was so bad that we said, okay, we're just, why are we going to go out? Right. We might as well take, if we're going to eat out, let's take in and eat it at home. But I'm, you know, I'm curious to know why it is down here. It does seem as though the service is just so much worse. Well, we can talk then about say flying. Chicago, no, for example. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think, first of all, I mean, I recognize that since the pandemic, service has declined because there have been staffing issues. In my experience, most of the restaurants, they start strong and they can't finish. So, like, the service is good in the beginning. They'll take your <laughs> order. You're going to get good service. And then your dish is just going to sit there when you're done. And they yeah. can't close out, close you out and turn you over. I've never heard that philosophy. Staff. They're, Jeff, they're lacking but, the staff to, you know, the finish. It's that last mile. Yeah. I don't think that that is unique to the restaurant industry down here, to be honest with you. And I know there are people that have moved down here recently. I mean, I didn't grow up here. My wife didn't grow up here. 
we've been living here long enough that we've become, oh, it's Miami. Become right. accustomed to it. Right. But even tradesmen, right? Like to find good people that are reliable to come to you out. It's hard to do that. You know, we have a roster now. We've been here long enough that we call upon people, but we're seeing people that just recently moved transplants sure. that are like amazed. Oh, they're amazed. It's and they're like, of, where do you find? I need a plumber. Where so, can you find? You know, <laughs> we have the ocean. You can't have everything. <laughs> Truly, <laughs> it's, it's kind of like the flip side of the positive of like Miami chill is, is the sort of negative, which is, yeah. well, they're pretty chill about doing the work sometimes right. too. Yeah. yeah. I, I we think, have a transient workforce, right? So yeah. like a lot of people here, they're here temporarily. They're enjoying the scene. They don't really want to work. And so I think it's hard for any employer to keep good people long-term. And I think it's gotten harder since the pandemic. And that being said, I do think that there will be, there should be, first of all, there's a huge opening for anybody who's moving down, if they want to move down to follow their customer base or client base to try to get the service right, no matter what your industry is. And I think there's some of that, right? Like some of the restaurants that are opening and some of the restaurateurs that are coming down here, I think yeah. maybe they're trying. I'm opening um, up ABBA in Bell Harbor oh, there you in go. two nights. Okay. So you guys can come yeah. and get a table at ABBA. I'm happy to hook you up. All right. And well, you can evaluate for yourself, Chicago okay. Hospitality. Well, there you go. Right. right. And so, but I think that I'm hoping that there will be a switch at some point that the customer base will demand it. Maybe. So people will have to do it, right? Maybe. Yeah. That's been my experience. If you want to survive, you got to get it right. And I think traditionally, South Florida has been a seasonal economy. Very. So conventional wisdom is if they can make it through the summer on locals, then they can survive the winter when they are all the snowbirds. <laughs> and so that's why I always yeah. thought yeah. the look, that's to me the best time to eat out in South Florida is the summertime when the restaurants aren't jammed and you can get a table. Yeah. But now we've we've had such an influx here that oh, we don't really have a season. It's just it's full all year round. Everything yeah. is full all year round. So I think it's, but that process used to be a good weed out. You Interesting. Because if you, yeah. if you weren't good, people weren't going to eat. The locals aren't going to eat there, you know? So ready for you, Jeff. On a random Thursday night, if you're going to a restaurant that you normally would go to, would you call and think, oh, I need a reservation? Right. No. No. Not, right. right? In yeah. the past, you would never have right. to do that. But now you do. I went with a buddy of mine. We met up. We went to a restaurant and I walk up and I said, hey, you know, table for two. And they looked at me and they said, do you have a reservation? <laughs> and I said, no, it's right. Thursday night. Right. I didn't need, thankfully there was a table, but right. that totally changed sort of our mindset that now you got to make a reservation. Yeah. Lunches, dinners, like it doesn't matter anymore. So yeah, I think big. that's the influx. That's yeah. a sign of success. I mean, it's, I think so. And I think that people have moved here. I think Miami has definitely become more sophisticated as a city. It is not well, it is not as entrenched as older, Chicago. more established cities, Chicago, New York, Boston, like all those cities. Sure. sure. And you have generations who grew up there and lived there and stayed there. And so I think that that is why you have the pride aspect almost, you know? And I think it's missing here because you don't have the generations and you don't, you have transient people and people who come for a brief period and leave. And then you have people like Jeff who are generational, right? His father and and him and his family and now his kids. So I think there's more of that and there's more of that that may lend itself to maybe a maturation of that. Maybe. You have any good restaurant stories? that you could share representing restaurants? I mean, what's it like working with chefs as, yeah. you know, businessmen? Yeah, you I imagine to, and you don't have to lot, name names. No, without naming names, right. I well, imagine yeah. some chefs suffer from, you know, they're 
excellent in the kitchen, but probably not very good at the conference room. So, you know, it's, it's interesting. So I have this super expansive corporate practice and real estate practice. And for our M&A deals, it's really ultra arm's length, ultra sophisticated. We have term sheets. They're super negotiated. Everybody kind of knows the game. In restaurant deals, it's totally wide open. <laughs> and often, you know, it's a restaurateur and some sort of owner of a property truly figuring out a deal together. And I often feel as though my job on those transactions is so much more important because I'm the person who can give structure to mm-hmm. all these ideas that all kind of sound right. So for example, is it a pure percentage rent deal? Is it a pure sort of top line deal? Is there some sort of an earnout? And trying to successfully navigate the sort of needs and desires of two parties and put them into a restaurant deal is right. often so much more creative, right. so much more fun than any kind of a yeah. super arm's yeah. length M&A deal. Right, because they have a concept. Like when they come to you, they have a concept. 100%. We want to do this concept or this restaurant in this space Make it happen. Make it happen. <laughs> like, just figure it out. Yeah. So, and so the attorneys are often sort of part business counselor, part attorney, part therapist. <laughs> but that's why I feel so privileged to be able to work with chefs because they have no appreciation for how these deals work. And so they come to us and even the most sophisticated repeat player chefs don't really understand these deals. And these deals can be a lease. It can be an F&B management deal. So for, you know, hotels don't often actually lease space to, say, Emerald. Emerald has an F&B management deal. He will be the face. He will be... He will be actively managing and hiring key personnel, putting them in place, doing the overall aesthetic, doing the concept, maintaining the overall brand integrity. But he's not physically leasing that space. And so helping these clients understand how to structure their vision in any given space is, you know, a truly creative process for me. That sounds like fun. Yeah, it is fun. I like that. And I, I always think that chefs are good chefs. They're like artists, some of them. They create something that, you know, we just consume it. You know, at the end, you have a feeling of fulfillment. You know, it's not, there's not like, you know, although I guess nowadays people are taking pictures of their food, but I don't quite quite understand that phenomenon, but I'd love to eat the foods. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's cool. Well, I'm glad we did this, Scott. This was a lot of fun. Anytime you're here for a restaurant opening, you want to come back on the podcast, you're welcome as long as you invite Brett and I to dinner. That's, uh, I'm just kidding about that part. Thank at you. Least, at least, at least get us a table. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That ha- happy to always get you a table. Please yeah. come to Chicago. Definitely. Uh, and to. thank you guys so much for having me today. It was a truly a huge pleasure being here. Yeah. Thank you. A pleasure is ours. If you like this episode, please give us a five-star review. Share us, follow us, send us notes about what our amazing producer, Nelson Rosado. You'll find information about Scott in the show notes and we'll see you next time. Thanks, Scott. Nelson, be the man. For more information on this show and other resources, visit FastAmron.com and connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at FastAmron.com.